A warm welcome to the Creative Places and Faces podcast, the podcast that explores places that help to inspire creativity. Some are local, some even formative, and others are far away and sometimes rather exotic. I'm Mike Payne, one of the Creative Places and Faces team. Let me introduce you to your host, Jackie DeBurka. Jackie is originally from Dublin, Ireland, but has spent a lot of time abroad, especially in Spain. She is the author of Salvador Dali at Home, creator of Travel Inspires, and the number one travel and tourism influencer, Q2 2020, according to Global Data. Over to you, Jackie. Today's guest is Sean Mackle, who writes fiction and poetry, as well as being a visual communicator. He won the Canturk Flash Fiction Prize in 2019 for his story, The Silent Mouth. Sean has been lecturing and working in graphic design for decades in Australia, Germany and Ireland. Sean, you're very welcome today. Thanks very much for having me. Lovely to have you here, Sean. I think we'll hop in, Sean, straight to the point and talk about, you have a wonderful insight about the role of place. Can you tell me and our listeners, Sean, what place means to you? Well, I suppose initially place is geographical. You know, it's it's on the map. You look at a place and you say that's that's where I'm at or whatever. But also for me, it's also grounded in in language, particularly in Ireland, where place names are kind of fanatically on on maps, but really they're originally Irish place names, so they have meaning. They have a certain poetry to them. And on top of that, of course, place for me is 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 embedded in time. A particular place might be very different when you go back ten years later, or you know, 20 years later. So it's kind of those notions kind of all kind of mixed together when I come to produce work. Okay, that's very interesting. And Sean, which places you've been, obviously both living and working in a variety of places, which places are important to you and your creativity and why? Well, there are probably quite a few uh, um, over the years. Um, I did study uh, design and later applied arts for a while. And then later on, I did an MA. So Belfast is important for me in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, Donegal, of course, would be a place where I spent most of my childhood summers initially with my parents, and then um, to do to study Irish language, but also where I first uh, started teaching design. So Donegal would be important to me. Australia mm-hmm. is significant to me in the sense that I emigrated there in 1988 to lecture there, and I also began to publish and exhibit there um and when i returned i returned to Derry. so Derry has an importance to me to some extent too um where i began teaching at uu and i also established a creative writing uh, cross-border group and continued to exhibit and then galway is probably nearly as important to me as australia because to me galway is like a cultural retreat um there's loads of arts festivals i love the energy of the place and the people germany is important because I have family there. My partner's German. And mm-hmm. um, I, I was teaching for a while in Augsburg as an Erasmus professor. And then finally, Portugal and Spain, uh, to me, are my kind of uh, equivalents of, of Australia, I suppose. Now, I have an annual Camino kind of thing that I do every year, obviously. And to me, it's like a like a creative retreat, nomadic, and the, and the notion of, of, of place being transient. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, of course, we're recording this early 2021. You didn't get to do that in 2020 for the obvious reasons. We're recording right now. We're in the third lockdown for many, for many places that we're both aware of. Um, imagine 
of all the places that you've mentioned, Sean, if you were told tomorrow you need to go to your favourite place until the pandemic is under control, which of those places would you choose and why? Um, without a shadow of a doubt, I would choose Australia. <laughs> it's uh, I would probably imagine myself on a veranda somewhere uh, drinking a beer listening to cicadas or cicadas. I'm not sure which way you pronounce them, but we call them mm-hmm. cicadas in Australia. Um, I love that sound, but I also love the quality of light, uh, the scale of the landscape, the, the vastness of the the swathes of gum trees. Although now we've seen in recent times have been badly damaged by forest fires, but then the size of the skies at night were just stunning, you know, different, different stars, constellations. But probably more importantly is, um, living over you know away from where you're normally from you have a chance to reinvent yourself um you're no longer so-and-so's son or so-and-so's brother or blah 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 or your man from up the road you in a way you kind of become a different version of yourself maybe a better version of yourself i think to some extent yes i think that's a really interesting point um now just to sort of get the background on your whole life, Sean, up up until now, it would be great to kind of take a trip back and explore your formative years and then just move through your life gradually and experience it from your perspective, Sean. When, when and where were you actually born? Uh, I was born in Belfast. Um, I lived in a place called Andersonstown in West Belfast, which at that time would have been perceived as kind of a uh, kind of a danger zone for many people living in Belfast, but to me it was just normal life. Uh, mm-hmm. My early years in Belfast, pre-Troubles, because I was 50, born in 57, so I was 11 or 12 and 69. So pre that time, I have fond memories of, of my grandmother um, coming at Christmas time, and uh, she was from North Belfast, not too far from a place called Wolf Hill. Mm-hmm. And, um, in Leganil, North Belfast, and she was um, married to a butcher who had passed on, but her three sons were butchers. And um, she was she used to make lard and stuff like that, suet and put it in the pan and make lard and put it in packets. But she used to bring a mouth organ with her at Christmas time, take her false teeth out and play <laughs> two, two tunes. The two tunes she played, strangely enough, one of them was Danny Boy and the other one, despite her being a Catholic, was the Sash. Uh, for some reason, <laughs> that was her, okay. one of her favorite tunes. Uh, on, on my on my grandfather, on my father's side, he was his wife had also passed away, but he was a Gilgore, but maybe not in the same category as my father. He was maybe self taught, but he was um, a house painter, and he was a great one for telling stories. Uh, great interest in you know secondhand books at that time belfast had a at a place called smithfields uh, and it was it was a massive kind of secondhand book sort of stores in there and he used to come up with all sorts of books and give them to me and uh, mm-hmm. mainly on art he encouraged me to draw my brother was interested in music he encouraged him to play the mandolin and he's now quite a proficient musician um but he was a great uh, but i just remember that the intimacy of that sort of these older relatives and in, in their houses and my granny's house had an outside toilet. I remember the kind of smell of damp, and and the outside toilet was like, was a bench with just a hole in it, like with a bucket underneath it, you know. <laughs> and just pouring papers on a on a butcher's hook on the wall, you know. Um, and my grandfather's house had a certain kind of a fusty smell, but there was lots of wee old paintings and stuff that he had done, and some of his relatives had done, framed on the wall. Um, so. I remember that sort of aspect of, of Belfast, it's the intimacy of it, the small houses, the tiny spaces, but there was great 
uh, crack. I mean, Belfast people I find very great wise crackers, you know, and I've no mm-hmm. specific to Belfast in particular. Um, but then when the when the when the troubles broke out, it it was now I have to say something here. I, I didn't in any way feel uh, frightened by the troubles, even though it's, it seems a strange thing to say as an eleven year old who was growing up and all the trauma. But I do mm-hmm. remember um, the, there was a street burned down called Bombay Street in in Belfast. Now my father was an architect, and he, along with a bunch of other gale goers, um, raised money. And used to get us to go outside the churches every Sunday, all the masses with little cardboard boxes collecting money to rebuild these houses. And he okay. he actually designed them and they did rebuild them. And they were kind of a cooperative kind of social led kind of group. And they, they give them to the people, the people who'd lost their houses. So that was a big event I remember at the time. But I do remember because that happened, the school I went to, now there's an exam in the north you do when you're going from primary into secondary. Um, and it's called 11 plus. I didn't actually pass it. Everybody else in my family did pass it, but I didn't pass it. But I went to this school and the school I went to um, closed down for three months to accommodate the refugees from all the houses that had been burnt down. Uh, oh, really? I remember at that time, the freedom of that, it was wonderful, but it probably didn't help the education from, from my point of view. <laughs> but my father was also kind of a great collector of of going out and collect money to raise the Irish language and stuff to support the Irish language. And he went out on one occasion and was shot at by the British Army. And he survived. He, he didn't get hit by the bullet, but his car was riddled with bullets. Like, And I remember wow. trying to take him to court. I remember the photographs. Of, of remember the windscreen. It was quite traumatic, but it just seemed to be routine at the time. But outside the school I went to, there was a massive um, military fort called Silver City. And it was on a daily basis. It was riots. There would have been people throwing bricks at the at the outside of the corrugated iron, and there would have been rubber bullets coming back, and people running down the street. But that was kind of almost normal. Uh, it it didn't seem traumatic at the time, but reflecting, like you think it, it was insane. Um, but my screen's just gone a wee bit. No, it's okay now. Um, but also behind the house where I lived, um, Casement Park was the, the Gaelic. Uh, football pitch it was occupied by the army so right behind the house was this also this massive fort with big beam lights on your back garden and that kind of thing and you would have occasionally have had a, a situation where somebody was shooting at them and they were shooting back and you know all sorts of stuff so it was um extremely kind of aggressive bar- environment but it was it seemed normal there's lots of mm. arcades and lots of buses burning and shootings and funerals and uh but it, and I think at that time I then developed this acute sense of I don't know what to call it, unbelonging or something dispossession. You you did live there, but you didn't really feel as if you were uh, part of the, the the community. Your 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 identity was kind of not recognised, and that was, I was acutely aware of that. Um, and that would probably be the predominant thing that would that would have stuck in my mind, you know, of that. So do you think, Sean? Because at the beginning you were sort of saying that you didn't really fear, feel fear, you know, when the, the troubles broke out. No. But then then the last comment you made, Sean, about the not feeling part of the community, do you think that that, that would be like almost like that sort of po- post-traumatic sense where it's almost like an outer body kind of experience? Could it be like that? It could be, but I think it was, it was also like I, I do remember – I mean, my name was Sean, but I would often be called John. About, like, even when I went to, you know, to Ulster Polytechnic to do my qualification in, in art and design, I did a one-year 
foundation course and then a three-year degree. Mm-hmm. The staff didn't call me, Sean. They called me John. Or you would have had um, security staff who would have maybe not let you in, you know, would have asked for your ID and they would have uh, – see, Anderson Town would have been on your identification and you would have had like BT11 or something on your on your ID card or something. And that would have almost – uh, you you were you weren't you were seen as kind of a pariah suspect. You know there was a TV series on on British TV at the time called Citizen Smith uh, mm-hmm. about a guy who pretended to be like a like a revolutionary. And in many respects, yeah. I looked like him. I had long hair, I had a combat jacket, strangely enough, and I had Doc Martens that had long jeans. So I probably did look a bit suspect. But then maybe everybody looked that way at the time, you know. But I do remember I, I carried um, all my art design supplies. In a, in a briefcase, which seems ridiculous. I was wearing Doc Martens and Skinners and a combat jacket longer, but I was carrying all my art supplies in a briefcase, which seems insane. But so maybe I did look, you know, and most of the people at college, they were lovely people, but they would have come from different sides of the fence and some of them would have come from some money. They would have talked about mm-hmm. yachts and horses and things, whereas I would have been coming from, you know, up, down, up beyond the Falls Road, really coming down on a taxi one of the people's taxis kind of thing. And so it, it, it probably was seen a wee bit as, as strange. Although having said that, there were people from the loyalist community also in the course. I wasn't the only one, in a sense, from a working class kind of area. But I was conscious of that. I remember the first time I met people, names like Wendy and, and all that kind of stuff. It was all a sort of cultural shock. Of course, most of my mates all had, you know, Christian names or kind of Catholic names kind of stuff, some Irish names like myself. But it was a, it was certainly uh, it was interesting. I don't I don't really remember being traumatized, but it was only a, as the years went by, I began to realize how rich an experience it was, more so than a traumatizing mm-hmm. experience. Even though I did know some people who who died, and I did know some people who died tragically. But uh, and I did uh, recently, I did write a story uh, which was shortlisted for the for the RT short story prize called "Everything Will Be Recorded." And that, in fact, it was acted. I'll, I'll send you a link to that. So there's a recording of that on was broadcast. Okay. But that looks at the, if you like, a more traumatic version of that experience. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I thought it was, I thought it was a, an, an interesting uh, experience. So what, what I can do, if you want, I have, I have two poems. There, now this was from a collection that I published with Lapwing some years ago. Called, okay. Called Strangled Laughter, which is a bit of a twisted name, but anyway, the the, the title of this poem is called Nineteen Sixty Belfast, uh, mm-hmm. and there are two poems. This is the first one I'll read, which is like, if you like, it's before the storm. If you like, it's it's around the time when I was had this connection with my grandfather, and my granny, and and all that kind of thing. And then I'll read a second one, which will give you maybe uh, some idea of of what it was like to be in the eye of the storm. Okay, perfect. This is is 1960 Belfast is the title. Um, My grandis hands smelt of putty and paint. As though tender and precious, holding a book, he'd leaf over pages, sifting words with his fingers. Aunt Annie's house was dark and silent. She'd give me a tin and playing, I'd open it, feel the sharp edge and the spangle of buttons in its belly. My granny lived in a terrace. Walls like slabs of lard framed her window to the street. I remember eating plain bread and chips in a room just bigger than the tablecloth. Uncle Joe had a butcher shop that tasted cold and smelt of fat. He'd sprinkle sawdust for the dead chickens hanging in a row. 
So that's 1960 Belfast. And that, in fact, okay. I, I did animate that actually not very well. I did a line drawing, which took me uh-huh. a, a year and a half. And initially I had notions that uh, maybe I could become an animator, but I realized the sheer amount of work in animation, I thought, no, the hell with that, you know. So I <laughs> came up back very pretty quick. But that was animated in the late 90s and shown in various film festivals in Galway and Belfast. Now, this is this is the second poem, Invisibly Repaired, is the title of the poem, and it's dedicated to my mother. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, get down, get down on the floor. Sunlight through my ma's Venetian blinds sliced the wall like a pan loaf. The top shelf of the china cabinet had a few cut glass goblets. A ceramic nymph playing the flute, invisibly repaired. And the black phallus of a rubber bullet. The background was etched mirrors. At a glance, there appeared to be two of everything. A holy mother of God, get down, get down on the floor. Outside, someone was spitting bullets through my dad's private hedge at a passing patrol. Mama was sprawled awkwardly, half sitting, half lying against the chair. Pale and shocked, like a trapped bird, she flapped frantically for us all to stay on the floor. I slid my arm snake-like along the carpet until I reached the grin of buttons and pressed record. So that's the second poem. Yes, that's an amazing contrast between the two. The The first poem is, is, is uh, very much like a... a extremely well described series of still lifes. Yeah. Yep. Whereas the second is obviously full of action. Yeah. And it's, it's also kind of a play on that notion of, you know, you witness these things, but you are actually recording them in your head. Although at that time I was recording it on an old fashioned Panasonic recorder. The red and blue, Okay. You know, but that's okay. What I was playing so you, you were recording at that stage. Now tell me something going, going back to your younger days. Did you notice Sean, uh, what age you might have been when you when you started to become actively creative yourself, either writing, reading, visual arts of any sort? Yeah, I, I did. I mean, the house. My father was a great. Um, he's a great reader, and he still is. In fact, he's he's in his late eighties now, and mm-hmm. he's crazy about books. I mean, for many years he had a like a like a diagram on the wall of all the books he would give to people, and, and making sure he didn't repeat the same book to someone that he'd given the previous year. So he had this whole kind of diagram drawn out. So the, the walls are full of books in nearly every room in the house and including the bathroom in his house. Now, really? Yeah, even even to the point now where I'm kind of almost in the same zone. But um, and the books would have been on every subject under the under the sun, like art, of course, being a subject that he was very fond of, being an architect, and my grandfather would have given him lots of books. But even things like, you know, wildlife, natural history, um, you know, history itself, you know, he was just a huge number. So I was kind of very aware of literature, of course, poetry, language, and not just Irish and English, but also like Ulster vernacular speech, um, books on uh, the rhyming poets like James Orr, the kind of, you know, the guys in the 18th century, Ulster Presbyterians. He was mm-hmm. very, very fond of, of language and meaning of words. And so I do remember being almost saturated with that, almost to the point of, thinking i don't think i can write <laughs> there's, there's so much out there, you know what would i even do you know so i began to sort of just sketch one day i was just sketching i think i was sketching my thumb or something and my grandfather said to me my god you can draw something so i kind of then got into drawing but then i i began became aware of the visual and then i, I do remember looking at a walter mackin book cover 
and it was mm-hmm. it was a silent people. It was part of a, a trilogy, and it was about the famine. And I wrote a, a poem called uh, "The Famine Funeral," and it did win an award. And I thought, oh, so maybe I can, you know. So, but then I, then I became very conscious of at that time there was a new edition of of the town bowl Coolinia, which is the the cattle rate of Cooley, and it was a beautiful mm-hmm. edition with brush drawings by Louis de Brocky, and they were stunning. And they, I have a small version of it. My dad had the the prestige edition, which came in a boxed sleeve and everything. And I remember mm-hmm. being stunned by this combination of typography and imagery. And also, he had a, a number of books by Robert Gibbings. One called Sweet Cork of the beautiful edition with stunning woodcuts and and which were also done by Robert Gibbings and I remember being done by those so the, I was aware of the literary but I was also aware of the kind of the visual and also the object of the book and that mm-hmm. I think tilted me towards even though at that point I wouldn't have been aware that there was such a thing as graphic design or even a career in graphic design and my father wouldn't have been necessarily aware of it but there would have been members of my family um, who were sign writers and icon painters way back because I did study my I, I got into my family history there quite recently and I got as far back as I think the 1700s with my father's side and on my mother's side I got to the 1600s because she has some links to England so I was able to get to the 16 whatever 20 something um, and do, do you have both sides obviously on your dad's side from what you've mentioned you know there was quite a strong artistic uh, genetic influence yeah. and what about your mum's side Sean? Well my mum's side would be kind of a, a straight talker and I, I loved uh-huh. her and she would she would be she wouldn't. She wouldn't be crude in her speech because she would often tackle me if I was. She, you know, even now she'd tell me off. You know, but but she would. She would have had certain words that my father would have winced at. You know, so she wouldn't have been afraid of certain language. And her mother would have been had a lot of vernacular. And it was they were. You can particularly see it in the Belfast. Although you do see it a little bit in the Northwest and Derry. There's a wee bit of Ulster Scots goes in there too, like earthy languages. You know, and words that are punchy and gritty. And so I kind of would have picked up a, a certain musicality and and sort of a certain joy of words that maybe uh, shook people a little bit i kind of like that notion of the words could have r you know and she would have that r and she's a she's a she's a you know she tells me i'm a i'm a, I'm a chatterbox but she's a bit of a chatterbox herself you know so, <laughs> okay um, so but i do remember listening to, to the being in the in the house of my mother and her and her mother and her sister and hearing them chatting my mother also had a strange upbringing in the sense for some strange reason a relative or a friend of, of her mother's offered to mind my mother for a number of years and she did live with this lady so she in a, in a way had two mothers okay and this was the aunt danny that i mentioned who, who gave me the the tin with the buttons on it to play with this was a toy that i was given like a tin of buttons, you know but uh, and i do remember thinking this is amazing you know tin of buttons but uh, it's world has changed quite a bit but uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah but she had these two ladies and one of them was quite a reserved lady uh, um wore these kind of dark rim glasses and this was my aunt Danny as she called her but it wasn't really an aunt it was my mother's second mother if you want to call it that and then her actual mother who was this lady who, who melted suet on the pan and poured it into wax cartons and sold it in the butcher shop and but they all had the North Belfast kind of energy about them and I, I kind of liked that um, also the, this place called Wolf Hill did feature in one of my bits of writing because I became obsessed with wolves as a result of hearing about this field called Wolf Hill because I realized that, oh my goodness, there must be a history as to why it's called that. So in recent years, I've been researching a lot about wolves. And in fact, it did feature a novel I wrote. And there's an excellent book. I know you're fond of Galway. There's an excellent book by 
a guy called Kieran Hickey called Wolves in Ireland for anybody who wants to find Really? Yeah, history of wolves and the cultural history and the language and the names, the names of fields all around Ireland that have, you know, references to wolves in them. Is Okay. I, I saw a wolf like live on the 1st of May of last year. Oh, wow. In, in, just like in Spain? Locally. Yeah. Yeah, locally, just in, in, in a walk that I do. Well, that would be, that would fascinate me because my, my grandfather told me a story. I lived in Andersonstown, but there was a place near Andersonstown called Trench House, which I think mm-hmm. centuries before had been a big private dwelling or something. And his father had been a, a pretty poor kid, but somehow or other, the guy who owned this house was a wealthy man. And he decided to fund his training and funded him to become like a kind of a decorator and a painter and an icon painter and stuff like that. But my grandfather told me a story about him. It's his father having having gone to this house, which was surrounded by trees and quite a lot of trees, dense wood. And mm-hmm. on occasion, he was coming back, and this dog appeared from a large hound appeared from behind the trees. And um, it turned out to be an operation. It wasn't actually a dog or a wolf at all, but he had thought it was. And he'd raised it by this man called Mister Hamill, who owned the house. And of course, he told him that this only anybody who sees this it has to be in the family, and it usually means there's going to be a death. Blah blah blah. But this kind of fascinated me. This these notions of of old stories, and when I kind of grew up with this, my grandfather telling me these kind of half ghost stories, and he he would tell me about entering houses and painting the walls of these big grand houses, and he would have done, he would have done like kind of decorated reliefs around the, the edges of the ceilings and all that kind of stuff where he would have created kind of effects on the on pieces of wood to make them look like severe sophisticated timber mm-hmm. rather than plain timbers. But he would have found strange signs on walls and told me all about these weird Belfast ghost stories. So that kind of would have informed a lot of my my kind of imagination, I suppose. Definitely. Definitely. It would have been great great material for a young imagination. Um you mentioned, Sean, a little while back, you mentioned Walter Mackin as yeah. one of the authors that you read as a younger person. Yeah. Were there other ones that made an impact on you? I mean, obviously, it sounded like you were growing up literally in a library from how you've described your, was, your parents' house. I was, but I was a lazy reader, to be honest. I was kind of a, I, I did have a tendency to kind of, um, my brother was a fantastic reader and he, he still is. And I would, like, I have loads of books and I read an awful lot of nonfiction as well as fiction, but I was, um, I suppose impressed by people like Brian Moore. The Northern writers would have made an impression by Frank. Well, Brian Moore, Megan McClafferty, but this you know a certain kind of era that they belong to, so their stories would have kind of reflected that. But also, I would have been aware of Frank O'Connor. But then probably the poets would have been a big impression. I mean, Northern poets in particular. There was a guy who lived not too far from us called Podrick Fake, not very well known poet and wrote quite dark, twisted stuff. But I was intrigued by his stuff. I was aware of early Heaney's work way back in the early, you know, late sixties, his early stuff came out. I would have been aware of that in the house and read a bit of it. And at that time I did get his stuff quite well. Patrick Kavanagh, maybe John Hewitt, um, mm-hmm. would have been aware of him, Louis McNeese, but, but also these, these guys called the rhyming weavers, but Kieran Carson, I don't know if he published much then, but he did live near me and he was actually a professor of poetry since lately I passed away, sadly. Um, but he was the professor of poetry at, at, at QUB, Seamusini Centre, when I was there. A lovely man. And his poetry still speaks profoundly to me even today. And also the guy called Joe Tumulty, who would have been the father of, I think it Roma Tumulty, who married Sting. But he lived around the corner from us as well. And there was also mm-hmm. another guy who would have been, uh, I can't remember his name now, but he, he was a theatre guy. And you'd often see him coming down the street. 
resetting his lay his lines for his plays like a local theater group and he had <laughs> kind of long hair and big glasses and a massive bald head but the hair came from the back of his head it was quite long but he would recite his stuff as he as he pounded down the street you know so um i was aware of, of writing but i was aware of that to me i was so fascinated by the world i would often miss school and i would sneak out of the room at night and <laughs> climb down my father had put an extension on the house with a flat roof garage so i used to kind of sneak out onto the flat roof and then no, but that was very handy, obviously, to get out. I don't think you realise it, but that's what I was doing here. Eventually, <laughs> I was caught, and he was profoundly shocked and disappointed into, with my behaviour, so, as was my mother. But, um, but yeah, I was very much taken by life as well as by by books. You know, mm-hmm. you know that. Okay, that fascinated me. Uh, okay, and you've you've described, I mean, a very sort of a a colourful childhood background. Um, you know, in your own imagination, Sean, did you ever go anywhere as a family on holiday, you know, outside of Belfast? Were there any other places that you spent time in that had a good good impact? Yeah, we, for my father and my grandfather, I don't think all would have been perceived as as, as like uh, Nirvana because of the, the Gaelic there. And also it was, at, in those days, when you crossed the border, you know, you, it was almost like a sense of relief, you know, and you're in the promised land, <laughs> even if it was you know, it was Lyshen, you know, it was like, you know, oh, my God, we're in Donegal. So I do remember the first holiday we had in a place called Annegree, which was west Donegal, near near Ranafast. And um, I remember sitting with my grandfather and my father and my mother at night around this wee table, whether we kind of. Uh, shiny PVC tablecloth on it or something and we were having bread and jam and tea and we could smell the turf and to me it was heaven you know I do remember that in particular mm. and even to this day if somebody could bottle the smell of turf I would be more than happy um, I just love the smell of burning turf even though it's not no I think you're not supposed to burn turf anymore no but, uh, no yeah. no but I have the same I have the same memory so I do, I do actually understand that it is a beautiful smell but I think it's because like yourself Sean you're you know you're linking it to to lovely childhood kind of holiday memories you know yeah it's it, it just does something to me you know it's, it's just beautiful and uh, we would have gone there we would have gone there for a number of years. And then of course, when I turned 11 or so or 12, I was sent off to the Gale talk. And I did love that. I just loved that whole adventure of at that time. I do re- distinctly remember there was a pair of shoes you could buy called Wayfinders where mm-hmm. were made by uh tough. I think they made them and they, they had on each on the sole, they had an imprint of six or seven different animal footprints, you know, like a Fox print or an otter print or a rabbit print. And there was a compass in the heel. But I do remember going to Donegal in the first year in the Giltock and, and running through over the bogs to school and losing one of them in a bog hole. <laughs> as, oh. as a, and I think it was the one with a compass on it, actually. So, I never, you know, and my mother was, I wrote to her, I sent her a postcard and she was furious. And somebody <laughs> in the house. Somebody has lent me a shoe for the rest of the three weeks, whatever it was. But, it was, oh, nuts. but I do, I do remember that those days of yeah, the the Keelys and the you know the waves of Tory in the walls of Limerick and and uh, and some guy up on the on the stage Lilton, you know, or if there was if the microphone didn't work or something, you know. But um, it was brilliant crack, you know. And so for a long time, I I did see Donegal in in that light too. Of course, until you went and lived there, you realised that. In the winter time, or even sometimes in the summertime, the weather can be grim. Yeah, um, yeah. I did. I did. I, th- I have another poem. I don't know if it's, this is the last bit of reading, but just to give you a sense of of for me, Donegal is. Um, I love it, but it's it's a strange place. It sort of feels. It reminds me a little bit of when I was in Australia too. There's sort of a haunted quality to some of the landscape. The sense, okay, a sense of life that had been there and that has since gone, or has. Mm-hmm. 
you know, a, a more, you know, the, the history of Irish people living in the, in, in, in the wilds would live in these clans where these little communities, I mean, and those have kind of largely, you do, you do see these kind of empty derelict houses and you wonder who lived there. So this, this poem is, is um, also from the same collection and it's called, it's called Ghost Flower. Ghost Flower. Long wounds sunk down deep, soft brown slice after soft brown slice, are left to bake on a barren sweep of olive flesh. Rain, a moist space. Wind, a grinding tongue, sculpts my head to a shoulder of freckled granite. Amongst broken bones of oaks, long in their grave, dislocated from their wet sockets. Ciphers, like the ache from cavities of homes, rotted to their root, and the tiny white flame of bog cotton, a ghost flower riding a wave. So that's ghost flower. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, Sean. So going back to Belfast, uh, if you were to regard Belfast as a girlfriend, wife, you know, a romantic partner, how would you describe the relationship that you have now and how it developed ever since your youth? Uh, well, Belfast to me is it's like an old friend. I've I've never um, I, when I lived there, I, did, I was always keen. To, I mean, when I lived in we lived in Ornvara, as I said, which was a street facing the motorway, but there was a slight hill to it on the right hand side. So I used to look up over the hill and see the sun setting. Always fantasize what was beyond the hill on the sun. Mm-hmm. So I did always have this lo- this longing to to travel, but I I still have a fond spot for Belfast, even though it would. I mean, thankfully. In the seventies, when I was in my late teens and early adulthood, I would have been aware of the ring, the ring of steel, the security thing they put around the city, you know, to prevent people coming in with weapons or bombs or whatever it was, and you were being searched in the way. And that's all gone, of course, many many years. But and also, I was very conscious of um, the territorial kind of patchwork quilt that I grew up with in Belfast, which is particularly strong in Belfast, more so than you would ever see in. In the northwest, in Derry, for example, is very different. It's almost divided by the river. Even though there's an area in the west bank of Derry, the fountain, which would be perceived as a largely as a Protestant community, and it's maybe shrinking. But historically, the city wouldn't have been a patchwork quilt the way that Belfast would have been. And you know, you could cross the road and cross a footpath, and people can almost determine what side of the fence you were on, depending on which way you walked on that footpath. Nearly, you know. And I do remember that, but that's all gone now. I mean, Belfast is much more dynamic and and relaxed than it ever was in the past but but it suffers like all cities now do with this you know the digital economy affecting the the footfall and, and the city centers then sometimes being hollowed out you know you, you can see that in, in nearly everywhere now you go now but you can see it in belfast to some extent but i did love bell and i still when i was doing the ma queens i, I loved the the energy of belfast and the, the the people i do like the it's refreshing i do remember when i first came back from australia that hearing a belfast accent was really quite vivid in my ear at the time you know so uh, yeah i would i would regard it as um it was it also informed a, a novel i wrote called the b called the b orchid which kind of explored that the history of you know the paradox at the center of the irish conflict is that at one point in the 18th century the presbyterian radicals saw themselves as republicans and i was fascinated by that the history of that mm. so i did write a book that kind of explored that and, and i got a pretty generous uh, grant from the irish arts council for it um so yeah, to me, uh, it, it has a vivid, uh, rich history, which I, I like. And also, I, I'm not, 
a lot of world architecture, despite the fact my brother and my father are both architects, but I was always fascinated by some of the old buildings you would see in around Belfast, some of the some of them quite dramatic and monumental. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, for various reasons, I, I'm fond of Belfast. And also the fact that I grew up in the foothills of the, of the Black Mountain, but Cave Hill wasn't too far away, you know, what they call Napoleon's Nose, you know, there's sort of, there's an edifice that comes out of, of a Cave Hill called Napoleon's Nose. And really it's it's like, it does look like the sleeping giant. In fact, it did inform Jonathan Swift's uh, Gulliver's Travels, apparently this this idea of the giant was really, he, he had lived in Belfast at one point. And okay. if you look at the Black Mountain and you look at Cave Hill, you will see what looks like a person lying on back on their head looking up at the sky with their nose. And that's where that notion came from, apparently. So, okay. yeah, so that's a little aside there, you know. <laughs> that's interesting. Now, you went, uh, Sean, in 1988, I believe it was, you actually went to Australia at that time for work. Yes. How did that landscape, I mean, what a huge contrast, how did that landscape and also the Aboriginal culture, how did, how did they affect you? Uh, hugely. I mean, uh, I was married at that time. I had, uh, at that point, I had um, a girl and a boy which were born in Ireland. And um, my uh, ex-wife worked as a, in a family community services, working with, with, uh, with uh, working in the community. And she, uh, because of her job, I became aware of what was called the Stolen Generation, which I had never heard of before, which was in the 60s, the Australian government had a policy where Aboriginal people, if the children looked white, they were taken from and they were given to families, uh, raised as white. And in many cases, they, these people did not know until their late 20s or early 20s or late teens that, in fact, they weren't from that family. And, in fact, they were from the Wiradjuri tribe or the Wundjuri tribe. And so there was a huge trauma. So she was involved a lot in in the late 80s, early 90s with, with working with the, these groups to, to try and reconnect them with their indigenous uh, tribes. So that was the first thing I learned very quickly when I got there. Um, also, I, I was aware of, um, I hadn't realized it either, that the city I lived in was called Wagga Wagga. Wagga mm-hmm. means crow in, in an Aboriginal Wiradjuri language. There, there aren't any plurals. So if you say the word twice, you're really saying crows then. So Wagga Wagga can mean crows, but it can also mean if you look up at the sky and you see lots of birds, you can get dizzy. So it can mean dizzy man. I mean, it depends, okay. it depends on the context. So I was fascinated by by their culture, their language. And I, I, became, I became more aware of my own then. And also I became more aware, I would hear casual comments. I mean, I was living in inland New South Wales, six hours drive from Sydney, five hours mm-hmm. north of Melbourne. So I was aware of, I mean, I didn't find it a particularly racist culture, I have to say, but people often say it is, but I didn't find it to be so. But I did come across the odd casual comment about Aboriginal people, and I realized it wasn't that dissimilar from the comments you would hear in Ireland about travelers. It was similar kind of, and I realized the sort of prejudices that I had grown up with, certain little things that I became conscious of then. So that was the first thing that kind of I came aware of. I also then joined a, a writer's group, and it was called 4W, Wagga Wagga Writers Writers, and it was a guy who, from the university set up the group and then set up a journal. So I became, and I, I mixed in a group of writers there who were wonderful people. Like, and you would have had people who were bush band kind of ballad singers, and you would have had some people maybe struggling with addiction, and you would have had people who were, you know, dabbling at writing. It was a whole mix of different people, such a wonderful, diverse group of people. So I kind of that, I began to take my writing seriously at that point then, and um, and I began to, began to exhibit then. But I do, I did, I love the. The scale of the landscape, I think, 
had an impact on the boundaries of my imagination, or at least I felt it did. And also the skies, it seemed to lift the top of your head. You just felt, you know, you know, Ireland can be so intimate and so you're looking over your shoulder at some some person behind you or in front of you. Everybody's fighting for the same bit of, bit of ground, whether it's a job or whatever it is. You know, they're kind of over there. It's vast, huge distances. And I thought that was liberating. Absolutely wonderful. And also the School of Visual and Performing Arts had so many different um, activities. You know, there were sculptors and there were theater people and there were film people and there were painters and there were graphic designers and photographers. So it was it was really diverse in terms of the influences that I had. So I kind of, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I, and I also, in, I kind of then joined the Graphic Design Association of Australia. So I went to lots of conferences and I also became aware of, of certain paint uh, schools, Aboriginal painting schools, the Papua mm-hmm. School, and their work. Like it's very graphic, it's very abstract, uh, but I love it, this stunning stuff. Um, and I love the sound of the didgeridoo, and oh, I just, I just absolutely loved it. I do remember on one occasion. I mean, it seems really casual now, but I do remember on one occasion coming back from the university, and the university had a, had a massive campus. It was full of trees and outside swimming pools, and you know the faculty of humanities might be like two kilometers up the road from the faculty of sciences. So you would be driving up these wee roads in through this kind of green campus, and. I do remember one occasion driving over a red-bellied black snake, a huge, big black snake. And, uh, when I looked in the mirror, it wasn't, it wasn't on the road behind me, and I thought, I wonder, is it? I wonder, is it inside the bonnet somewhere? So, <laughs> so I, I, I pulled up in the paddle station. I said to a guy, I think I need, need to check the oil here, but I think there might be a snake under the bonnet. And sure enough, that's where it was. So we kind of we got it out. But I mean, it was kind of, um, and it was. Uh, was it okay? It, it, the snake? It was a snake, okay, yeah, and it wasn't dead either. It was just it just had wrapped itself around the wheel and went up inside the engine, you know. But uh, I, do, I do I do remember another occasion. Um, my ex-wife's father came to visit us, and we were sitting on the veranda, and he said, "Do you ever see any spiders?" And I said, "Ah, oh, loads of them, but not nothing poisonous." But just as I said that, I, I looked on the on the seat beside him, and there was this little red belly, red back spider, and I thought, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so I had to. And then when we moved into the house, uh, I remember we rented this house, and I remember thinking. Uh, the guy showed us the garden, and there was a toilet, like a dunny. He called it dunny down the back of the, the yard, he called it. And I went down, that's pretty handy. Then I realized it was the only toilet in the house. So at nighttime, when you went out, you had to basically get a stick and just, you know, go all around you just to knock any webs away so that when you're in the toilet, nothing fell on you, you know. Okay. Well, would, be, would, would generally would go somewhere dark and damp, and that's where they kind of lived. So you were, but it became routine, you know. Mm. Okay. And then um, tell me something. You you talk about the vastness and how that affected your imagination and, you know, the, the wonder of the landscape there and also the, the Aboriginal culture. Of course, being away from Ireland, did you feel like you were a man in exile or not? I, I never missed a place once. You know, I do remember this was like 88 to 92 or so. And I do remember um, at, at that time I was still recording cassette tapes. And I remember, you know, talking to the tape and then send it to my parents. Um, but apart from the occasional um, lengthy tape that I send, the you know regular phone calls, I I, I loved it. I, I just loved the and I, I applied for a job actually in in uh, in New Zealand uh, around that after three years or so. I didn't get it, but um, I was you know I, I, the word was my oyster really. I thought where we're going to go next kind of thing. But at that point, mm-hmm. my, marriage, my marriage was kind of going power shift and I. We had a choice to make, and I was offered a job back in Ireland, and so it, they kind of brought me back. But 
And we didn't have to say, of course, the university over there were wonderful. They said, listen, you know, if you want to take a year out, you know, you can go home and think about it. So these were all, and I was thinking, well, you can't go wrong with that. That's, you know, not a bad option. Um, But no, I I just love the, and the fact that every state had a major city and every major city had so much diversity and so much culture. Like I remember particularly going to Melbourne on one occasion for, I used to place students in design consultancies all over Australia, but mainly in, in Sydney and Melbourne. And, I, you know, you'd, you'd maybe spend two or three weeks going down to visit them. And I, there were some really dynamic uh, design consultancies and illustrators and photographers. And uh, But there was an amazing sculpture exhibition or, or festival going on in Melbourne when I was down there. And it was all like out in the street, people doing all sorts of weird, wonderful things. Um, the, the literary scene was dynamic, really was dynamic. Um, yeah, I, I, I just thought it was a... It was a super cultural experience. And when I came back, I didn't actually think I was coming back for good. I thought maybe I'm only going to come back for a year or so. And I had permanent residency, but I hadn't gone for citizenship. But probably to do with the fact that I'd come up from West Belfast. And to become a citizen, you would have had to kind of put a nod to the royal family. And I just couldn't, at that time, I couldn't have brought myself to do that. So I had just simply went there on the basis of what we call permanent residency, which you could live there permanently on, but you would have had to um, renew it every four years or so. And uh, mm-hmm. I, after four years, I, I was able to come back for a year. But if I hadn't gone back to renew that, it naturally lapsed. So I, I wasn't even, even able to go back and and rebuild a life there, which uh, probably would have liked to have done. But having said that, having seen the way climate change is, is affecting the world, and particularly Australia, because when I was in Wagga, it was 44 degrees Celsius in the summer. Wow. <laughs> And there were 21 degrees in the, in the winter. So yeah. And after a while, the first year I thought, my God, this is brutal. But after a while, the, the 21 degrees began to feel cold, funny enough. Um, but I, I've heard people saying now that you're talking temperatures that are hitting high 40s in places that would normally have not gone near that. So that that would be pretty challenging, I have to say. And I do I do remember a particular park in the car one day to go into a shop and leaving something on the dash. And when it came out, it had melted. Like it was a cassette there. And it just melted, you know. <laughs> So, so um, yeah, and and you you wouldn't park your car unless you were parking under the shade of a tree. You wouldn't just park it in the street because you'd be burning your, your legs or yourself because everybody's wearing shorts. And in those days, nearly all the seats were PVC in the cars. You know, you'd be burning your thighs and you jump into the car again. So, uh, but no, I, I, I just I just loved it, and I loved the. It was it was to me the wildlife was a big thing too. If you went for a stroll, you could it just seemed to pulse with life. You know, hmm. insects and snakes and animals. And I know they can be frightening, but I, I wasn't particularly concerned about that. It was just the, the, the if you walk, if you take a walk through the West Donegal, you won't, you'll be lucky to see, to see a sheep, you know. It's just, that, it's just that notion of there is this indigenous wildlife. It's just teeming with it in Australia, you know. And hmm. I, I, you know. Yeah, I can I can imagine. I mean, that that's something that I would absolutely adore as well. It's almost like being not in a jungle, but something that's so natural as opposed to yeah, yeah. and it's and it, you, know, you, know, you feel small in it too and you feel insignificant which is which is a good it's quite a leveling thing and i i, I like that you know i mean I, I, I would say a typical australian would probably say that you know that's a romantic notion of what the landscape what's really happened to i know that some of the landscape has suffered terribly as a result of you know settlement and all that kind of thing and there are areas of rewilding going on in australia just like there's areas of rewilding going on in scotland but um but still, for me, it, it had this sense of 
being a, la- a landscape that was alive. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, and, I mean, strangely enough, despite the heat, there were times when there were floods in Wagga and there were times when there were bushfires near Wagga. And I do remember on, on a few occasions driving and I had bought, one of the things I did love about it, I have to say, when I taught in the university there, I would look out of my window and I would see all the students often driving in in their cars. But these cars would be 1950s cars. So they'd be a stunning, stunning kind of cars that were immaculate because there was no rust. So they'd be driving these strangely colored cars, like often colors you would never have imagined people would put on a car, but that's, that's the color they were. Maybe in those days when they were made, all these kind of American type, you know, holding, I had a holding Gemini, which was a pretty sad looking thing, but there were some beautiful cars that had, you know, these little spoilers at the back and fins and stuff, almost like Batman type cars, you know, but they were beautiful, <laughs> stunning things. And, and a typical student would be driving in them because they were, they were dirt cheap and they never rusted. You know, so a little, a little bit like uh, the sort of scenes we see, typical scenes of Cuba, no, Th- those kind of cars. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, that, that's exactly what it would have been like. And it, you know, you would have had you know the car park full of these cars that students just pulled up in, and uh, and also it, because it was so hot, you were basically wearing you know, well they they were I would call them flip flops, but they always call them thongs, but they're just for your feet. You know, these flip flops, shorts, shorts, and and t shirts that everybody staff professors all dress exactly the same way. Even bank managers dress in these flip flops and shorts and t shirts. You know, strange. Yeah, because well, I suppose because of the heat, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's necessary. As Jackie just couldn't stop asking questions, this interview has been split into a few episodes. Be sure to check out the next one. The link is below. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast. If you would like to apply to be a guest or a sponsor, be sure to check out the links below the podcast. Until next time, from all of us here, take care, stay safe, and be creative.